0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Bob's Red Mill believes in baking, breakfast, and the pursuit of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast.
2: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network.
3: All right. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Heritage Radio Network. This, of course, is The Farm Report. I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks. And we are coming to you, as always, from the back of Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And today we are going to go a little nuts. Uh, We are going to be chatting almonds. I'm very pleased to welcome Gabrielle Ludwig. She is the director of sustainability and environmental affairs for the Almond Board of California. Uh, Gabrielle, welcome to the show. Good morning. So I am I'm super excited to to kind of chat with you. Almonds, of course, as you are well aware, have been in the news lots in the last couple of years. But I thought it might be helpful to get us oriented. Um, the almond plant itself, and um, I noticed from your bio that you actually have a PhD in plant physiology, Um, so I feel like we have the right person on the line, and I wonder if you can take us through in just broad strokes kind of the life cycle um, of an almond from kind of like seed to what I'm going to see, you know, in my granola. Okay.
4: Well, I think the first thing I always like to say about what is an almond it's basically a peach, and so it grows on trees, and essentially what we're eating is the inner kernel part of a peach, and that what we normally eat as a peach actually goes to dairy feed. but just sort of keep that in mind that you are basically eating the, the inside part of a peach. Um, in terms of the life cycle or the way almonds are grown um, Because we're talking about trees, they come from and they have, they start in a nursery where they develop rootstocks and they develop different varieties of almonds and they get grafted together and then um, they get planted, this grafted tree gets planted out in in the ground in the orchard, um, typically in the spring. And then it takes about three years before the trees start to bear fruit. And then the trees grow for roughly, on average, around 25 years until the yield their yields decline that much. that For the growers, it's typically better to remove the orchard. So it depends on prices. Um, in terms of sort of the annual cycle, that sort of gives you a sense of how the tree itself grows. In terms of the yeah. annual cycle, almonds bloom. They're one of the first things to bloom in California. We typically say they start blooming around Valentine's Day. You have a three-, four-week bloom period. Um, And I should also explain that almonds, um, most of the varieties we grow, um, the pollen will not fertilize the flower itself, will not fertilize itself. So you have actually in each orchard two, most commonly three different varieties of almonds growing. And then you need bees or other pollinators to move the pollen from one tree row with one variety to the other tree row with another variety. So that's why almonds are and and honeybees are so tightly interlinked that the pollen just won't fertilize itself in most of the varieties that we currently grow. Um, and then you know after pollination, you this you, you tiny little nutlet forms um, and the fruit starts growing. And so essentially, from about mid March until about early July, the fruit is growing. And then we have something that we call whole split, And that's when that peachy part actually splits. It stays on the nut, but it splits open, it dries up a bit, and you can see the the shell. And then harvest for the first variety starts around August 1, and depending on which varieties you have in your orchard can go through the end of September. So there's over a two-month period nuts of the almonds are being harvested. And then you have dormancy. and um, So that gives you a sort of a sense of, of the, both the life cycle of the orchard as well as sort of an annual life cycle. And I'm, if you have any specific questions, I'm quite willing to try and address them.
3: Oh wow, that's so uh, that—that's a great primer. I guess my my next question is: uh, When the almonds are harvested, um, what needs to happen to them? Kind of after that harvesting process, I know, like when I go to buy almonds in the store, I can get them raw or blanched or roasted. But can you just go out to a okay. tree and eat almonds yeah. right off the tree when they're ready for harvest, or is there other steps that need to happen?
4: Um. In principle, you could. Um, I mean, the way we currently harvest the nuts is, um, and, and then the, what we call the post-harvesting or the processing. So there's, there's a couple of steps that are involved with that. First of all, just the harvesting, which everybody loves to watch, is the first step is actually this machine goes and grabs the trunk of the tree and shakes it it's like this mini earthquake, and the nuts fall on the <laughs> ground. And it's just like this rain of almonds. Um, and then you know the machine goes on to the next tree. And then we let the nuts actually dry on the ground for a couple of days. That's what I call we use solar power to dry the nuts.
3: Um,
4: <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> um, and then they get swept into wind rows, and then they get picked up. And, and then they go to what we call the huller sheller sheller as I say, the nut or the fruit consists of three parts. You have the dried up peachy part, you know, the fuzzy part. And almonds, it's still green, um, and that's split open, at, at, as I say earlier. And those are the almond hulls, and those are valuable dairy feed in terms of from nutritional value. And then you have the shell. So if you if you're a European and you have Christmas plates, you would have almonds in shell in your Christmas plate. Those are those things that look like pockmarked, I don't know how else to describe it, shells. They're not a smooth shell. So right. the first step of hulling and shelling is to remove the holes, which you do by sending them through rollers and applying pressure, and that applies enough pressure to get the holes off. And then you continue applying more pressure with the same kind of rollers to then get rid of the shells to get to the actual almond or the kernel, what we call the brown skin almond. And so from there in the processing, various things can happen. Um, I mean, the main thing is it gets sorted by size and quality. So, you know, let's say the Japanese buyer may want some really, really big nuts, and so it will take several orchards to get enough together on that. Or like for a Hershey's Kiss, you may may want a small nut, a very small nut. You know, basically, buyers are looking for different qualities. And also, I should say, the different varieties of almonds have different characteristics. They taste slightly different. Some are good for blanching. Some are good for slicing and dicing. Some are better for marzipan. So in terms of those next steps, um, the main thing is to get to that brown skid almond. Many times, that's all that happens. And then they get shipped to wherever they're going to be further used or processed. Um but in some cases they can get sliced and diced they can be blanched that's where you put them in hot water and get rid of that brown skin on the outside of the almond mm-hmm. um, and then they can be put into various ingredients or snacks you know all the various things the way we've been enjoying almonds recently
3: yeah so i was I was surprised I did not know that um, California was such a large producer of really the global almond supply, you know, according to your website, Mm -hmm. it's about 80% of the global demand, um, which is there something particular, I mean, obviously there's something particular about the California kind of uh, climate or terroir that really lends itself to almonds. But I assume there's probably also, uh, you know, organizing or kind of culture component that makes it such a great space for Almonds. Like, what? It, what? What is it that that creates the environment? Like, what are some of the factors that create the environment right. for it to be such a such a uh, large scale producer for kind of the global market?
5: Right.
4: So you're correct that you know California produces about 80 percent of the global supply of almonds. Um, that number has been holding steady over the last I don't know at least 10, 15 years. Um, so even though our production has been increasing production elsewhere in the world has also been increasing. So the reason why California has been so good for almonds is a couple of things. One is just simply almonds like a Mediterranean climate, and that's a climate where it's cool and wet in the winter, but not necessarily freezing cold all the time, um, and then hot and dry in the summer. So that's your sort of typical Mediterranean climate. California, mm-hmm. the Central Valley in particular, has that. And then the other other couple of things that make California really good is, as I say, you do need a certain amount of chilling hours in the winter, which we get, but then it is one of the first things to bloom, so we can't have late frost. So a lot of areas, even if they have Mediterranean climate, they still get frost into March, and that's, at least with the varieties that are commonly grown, that's... Trees are not very happy, let's just put it that way. (laughs) Uh, um, So that's part of it. And then, as I say, they actually like having it hot and dry in the summertime in terms of, you know, not having disease and so forth. So that's part of what makes California work. The other reason why California works is the investment in the whole water supply infrastructure so you can irrigate. The story I tell is Spain is... Um, well, it's been trading off different countries, but in terms of the top importing market of California almonds, but it's been in, in the top three for the last 10 years, often the top importer of California almonds. And it is actually the next largest producer of almonds in, in the world, roughly 10%. They have actually a similar number of acres of almonds, but a lot of it is essentially dry land farmed. I call it benign neglect. And and so their production is much, much, much less than what we have in California. And that's really the main difference there is that investment in water and being able to irrigate. And then the third component that I think makes California successful is actually um, that investment the state has made, you know, the people of California have made to have a good university system to have an mm-hmm. extension system. So we still have, you know, the whole continuum of basic to applied to extension available. And that continuous innovation, that feedback between growers to the universities saying, here's what we need help with and vice versa, that has also, you know, allowed the industry and the growers to continually try new things and figure out how to do it better. Or the growers try something and the university says, hmm, that looks interesting. Let us get the data to show that it really is better. You know, it, it can be that way around, too. So um, I think all of those factors together is part of the reason why California has become so dominant in the almond-producing world.
3: Yeah, that, ma- that makes a lot of sense. So, you know, I know there's almost, you know, it's like just shy of 7,000 almond farms in California. And, Uh You know, it was interesting for me to see, you know, the almond Board was formed back uh, in 1950, and when they, you know, initially were formed, you were looking primarily at issues of compliance, and of course that has transitioned into, um, you know, research and promotion and kind of other activities. But can you talk a little bit about what those compliance issues were and and why that was kind of... uh, the, the initial thrust of the organization.
4: Well, I mean, this is the history more of, of marketing orders. You have federal and you have state marketing orders, and really the the you know the, the federal the marketing orders typically have can have up to three different um, responsibilities. One is you know setting quality standards and minimum quality standards. The other one is marketing and promotion, and the third one is research. Um, So the Almond Board itself started really focused more on the quality side of issues. And really when you think about it, what it comes down to as a consumer, and I can tell you from personal experience I have that, if you have a bad experience with especially like fresh fruits and vegetables, um, if you spend good money and it doesn't taste good or it's, it's rotten or whatever it is, you tend not to buy it again. Right. I mean you know, it's sort of evolutionary <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> you know, you know, basically you you adaptation and action. So so part of the reason you have this whole marketing order system is that growers have figured out that it's actually to their advantage to pull together collectively and set standards for themselves mainly to basically prevent the worst of the worst from hitting the market because that hurts everybody in the marketplace. Um, So, again, this is just in general for marketing orders. For almonds, I honestly don't know what the main drivers were at the time in the 50s. Um, Right. But you certainly can have insect damage. You can have mold. You can have, you know, If you want your nuts, if you want to have nuts that look good, let's say on a cake and you want the nice whole nut, you don't want a lot of chips and scratches. So I think by coming up with um, different categories of quality of nuts, you help the buyers be able to say, look, you know, for my purposes, you know, I really want the nice looking whole nut. So, you know, I want this category of nut. But if I'm making marzipan where I'm grinding it up with, you know, sugar essentially, you know, you don't really care what they look like.
3: <laughs> right, right. So,
4: so that's right. really some of the initial points of what sort of the quality standards and why they've evolved through this marketing order system. Um, and then, as I say, the research part got added in the early 70s, and again, that was to deal with very high insect damage and how to um, improve that. So essentially it was a quality issue um, that got the industry to say we should be funding research and that's been now in place for over 40 years. And again, I also think coming back to your earlier question, why has almond industry been so successful in California? I think it's also because the growers have invested in research for over 40 years and how to grow almonds better and understand more about the almonds and so forth.
3: Yeah, I always think it's like one of those interesting things talking with organizations like this that are looking at a specific crop because I I think on the consumer end, you're like, ah, an almond's an almond, and it just kind of shows up, and and it tastes good, and I know about it, and it just happens. And so it's nice to kind of peel back some of the layers on – on why you're seeing these, you know, particular types of nuts and how they show up and and what the kind of history and the impact there is. I mean, just from, like, an employment standpoint, you know, the California almond community is supporting over, you know, 100,000 jobs just in the state of, of California. So there's real kind of economics here as well. One of the things that I always think is so interesting about nut meats in particular is, this idea of um, freshness and, and how having, like, a fresh nut um, can impact kind of the, the taste and, and the flavor. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about um, kind of the, the life of an almond. Like, is my bag of almonds that I forgot in the back of my, you know, kitchen cabinet, does, like, how do they go bad, or how do I store them, and, like, where does kind of freshness Come into play yeah. with,
4: with the nuts. So for almonds, I, I will t- say two different components. I mean, we have done studies because we were looking at trying to see if we could get almonds to be part of the MREs, so the military's food that they provide to soldiers. And to do that, you have to prove that a food can last for two years. So we have data showing that you can keep almonds as long as they're sort of relatively undamaged and, um, yeah, for two years without losing the quality too much. Um, now, what I what the advice I would give anybody who, if you buy a bag of almonds, to be honest with you, any nut, the moment you open it up and you have oxygen in it, I would start storing it in the refrigerator or the freezer. Um, and it okay. also depends a bit on the kind of nut. So. Um, Like walnuts, I would quickly store in the freezer because they are very prone to oxidation because of the kinds of fats they have. They actually have some of the fats that are better for you than almonds, but they also make them more prone to going rancid. So my advice to anybody is if you buy nuts, especially larger quantity of nuts, once you've opened the container, store them in the refrigerator or the freezer. um, And that will help maintain the... um, Quality, especially avoid rancidity, which none of us really care for that 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 flavor we don't like. Um, but the same principle: if you have an unopened bag of almonds and you've forgotten it in the back of your your cabinet for a year or two, they're still quite edible. May not be the freshest tasting, but they're still quite edible.
3: Right, right. Um, yeah, I, I definitely I get the impression that we uh, that, that 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 people. Um, Eat a, eat a fair amount of nuts that like are not at their their peak of freshness because you always know it when you, like a like a great almond just like it tastes so good. But I feel like I've unfortunately had the I've I, I put more than a handful of like nuts not not so fresh nuts um, right in my mouth and, over and the then, last couple of years. Well, I want to take just a quick break to uh, hear from our sponsor. When we come back, I want to use. Okay the rest of our time to really dig in a little bit more to um, the the stuff we've been hearing about water and the almond industry. So hang tight, guys. We're going to take a quick break. You're, of course, listening to the Farm Report on the Heritage Radio Network, and we'll be right back.
1: I'm Mike Calameco, host of Food Talk on Heritage Radio Network, and I'm here with Bob Moore, founder of Bob's Red Mill, as well as Ray and Tom Williams, who've worked with Bob for years and co-own an organic farm in eastern Oregon and Washington. Ray, Tom, why is organic farming so important to your family?
5: It's all a matter of the soil is a source of nutrients. You increase organic matter of the soil, you increase the water-holding capacity, water is becoming increasingly scarce. So in terms of sustainability, we don't think it's the only answer, but it's one answer, and it's the answer that we're trying to pursue. It's been a challenge, and it's been fun, because it it is different, and we're learning how to do it for the last 10-plus years. We're not just doing organic. We're doing organic
1: to high standards. Bob, why did you choose to partner with Ray and Tom?
5: Oh, goodness. Well, because they're the best farmers in Oregon and they're close and they have a bunch of acres, I think about 10,000 over in in Eastern Oregon and Washington. They're wonderful farmers and their family have been farmers over there uh for many, many years. It's really important that you have long-term relationships and we've enjoyed a long-term relationship with Bob's because there are a lot of challenges to organic farming. You simply don't have as many tools as a conventional farmer, and so you have to rely on longer-term solutions. Knowing that you have a market is absolutely critical. The margins in farming are not that great. So if you grow the stuff and you can't sell it, you have a real problem. And we know with Bob's that we have a market, and... uh, We turn out high-quality grains, and they buy them, and it all works well.
1: Learn more about Bob's Red Mill and their commitment to good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast.
3: All right, we are back, and of course, we are talking almonds with Gabrielle Ludwig of the Almond Board of California. She is their Director of Sustainability and Environmental Affairs. And if you've been paying attention to the news at all in the last couple of years, you've, of course, hear, heard some big and kind of shocking headlines about water and the almond industry. So, Gabrielle, can you maybe demystify um, some of what we've been seeing in, in these kind of quick baity headlines? And, and what do we really need to think about and care about when we think about water use and uh, almond production?
4: Well, I think the main thing you need to think about is it doesn't matter what you eat. There is quite a bit of water hidden in it if you use something called the water footprint methodology in thinking about water use. Um, And really, it comes down to the way plants work. I mean, this comes back to my, my plant physiology background, and that is for the plants to get nutrition from the soil, which is where they get a lot of their nutrition from, they uh, you know, have it dissolved in water and they suck water up in through the roots and then move the nutrients up through the plant and the water gets evaporated off of the leaf leaves. It's called transpiration. And um, the same place where the water goes out, that's also where the CO2 comes in to do photosynthesis with. So I think what what frustrated me in that whole conversation is, um, yes, almonds use water, but, you know, pretty much if you looked at the amount of water applied, it, it, and this is now a different number, if you looked at the amount of water applied, it was pretty much the same across all the tree crops in California. Maybe, you know, a couple inches different, more or less, for some crops or the other. But fundamentally, right. it's not that different. Um, but I think the main thing people really need to understand is that almonds became the devil incarnate, is the way I put it, because we are now at around a million acres of almonds. When I was in graduate school, and I'm a little afraid to say how long ago that's become, but in the late 80s, early 90s, there was a five-, six-year drought, not quite as severe as this most recent one, but actually lasting longer. At that time, cotton was about a million acres in California, and they were the devil incarnate. So it really is just, as we have grown and become now one of the top three crops in acreage in California, um, you know, We're just more visible, and so I think a lot of it came down to just if you're one of the top crops, then you're more visible,
5: okay?
3: Um, Yeah, and if you're one of the top crops, of course, you're going to be using more water, but you're also producing more food. Right,
4: right. And so the other thing that that we were able to, when we looked at the numbers, you know, um, I think two other things that I think were interesting is, yes, we've grown an acreage, but still we're using um, of the total ag water usage, we don't use as much, um, I out how to say this well, but the percentage of land mass is larger than the percentage of the water that we use if you put it, if you look at just the ag water use. So let's say roughly 14% of the acreage is almonds, we use about 11% of the water. Um, But the other big thing is just simply, and again, this comes back to this focus on research at the Almond Board and that whole relationship with um, the continuum of basic to applied to extension at the university system is just in the last 20 years, we have 33% increase in yield for the same amount of water applied. And that's through improvements in irrigation and nutrient management, um, variety selection, changing how we prune the trees, actually less pruning of the trees. So, you know, that crop per drop has really increased dramatically just in the last 20 years, and we're continuing to try and refine our, our tools that we give growers, really make sure that any water they put on goes as much as possible to the crop and not elsewhere. So you know, it was. It's been a, and it's been an interesting journey. I will say that. But (laughs) you know, um, he's very polite of you. (laughs) Yes, Um, but I think it was. It it also sort of um, made it clear how, in this day and age of sound bites, how hard it is to, you know, represent information that's actually much more complex story than what is there. But I think the main thing people need to understand is that. Food, plants use water, that's how they get nutrients, that's how they get the CO2 to do photosynthesis, which provides energy literally to the biological world, um, the whole biological world. Um, and that it, pretty much anything you eat has quite a bit of evapotranspiration hidden in it. Um, and so, really, almonds are no different than anything else that you eat, to be honest with you.
3: Well, I I kind of imagine, like, a funny comic where we get, like, upset with people for being composed of 80% water. Right. (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Um, Well, so kind of on that note, I know that you um, have been doing some work around um, groundwater uh, recharge. And can you talk a little bit about uh, what that is and and where that's at?
4: Yeah. So the California Central Valley um, has like all these pockets underneath it where groundwater can be. and. To me, the groundwater recharge, the idea there is to put excess water on when you have excess of water available. So like this past winter was one of the wettest winters on record. The rivers are still flowing high. It'd be great to be able to take some of that water, put it back on the ground, and let it essentially trickle down to the subsurface water storage. And I think the way to think of them are pockets of water rather than a big cavern. It's not... It's more... There's a pocket here, a pocket here, but there's quite a bit of groundwater storage available below the soils of the Central Valley. And really the groundwater recharge, you have sort of, I call it two components to it. One is just trying to, especially during the drought, a lot of growers who had access to good quality groundwater turned to groundwater when their surface water supplies um, were diminished because of the drought. Um, so the first step is just to try and you know, put water back into the system that's been taken out of the system to help with irrigation or with drinking water wells, et cetera. But according to the researchers, they also point out that there's actually quite a bit of storage capacity that you could actually store groundwater or store water in wet years down there to use in dry years. So essentially think of it instead of having We currently rely on a dam where we store water behind it to use during the summer months. So we'd actually use the groundwater as a storage capacity to then draw upon, especially in drier times. So the idea is to really see, can you you put water on the ground, excess water on the ground, and let it percolate down and refill these, I'll call them subsurface, small ponds or tanks. So, And that's the recharge part. What we're looking at for almonds is really there's a couple of questions for almonds while we're funding the research. One is um, just simply there's a lot of acres of almonds, so it would be great to see if we can use almond land where appropriate for groundwater recharge. And there's a couple of questions with where appropriate. One is just simply you have to have the right soil type and below the you know, where the roots are growing, you can't have a big clay layer that the water just moves sideways. It has to, to, get, has to have a way to get down. So one is having the right sort of soil matrix until you reach that first um, pond, underground storage place. The other one is just simply almond trees actually don't like, as I mentioned earlier, they like actually a hot, dry environment. So they don't like what we call wet feet. They don't like standing in water for a long time. And right. so right. trying to figure out, you know, under what conditions can you put some excess water on and not hurt the trees, you know, easiest to do that in the wintertime during the dormant season, but you also have quite a bit of water. Like now, as the snowmelt's really starting to hit from the mountains, when the trees are already, you know, got almost fully sized fruit. <laughs> so so that's the other question we're trying to research. And then the, other, the third area you do need to pay attention to is um, you do need to make sure you're not putting anything bad into the groundwater. So are you pushing nitrates or salts and hurting the water quality? So there's some sort of regulatory issues that we also have to pay attention to. But the gist of it is really trying to see can almonds and other crops in the Central Valley, can that land where it's got the right geological conditions, can it be used in wet years to flood and to purposely flood and let that water get into the groundwater so that then you have
3: more water stored for the drier years. Wow. Wow. I feel I'm like that. Like it's so fascinating to kind of untangle all of the different ways that right. um, your organization and the um, education system and and the research behind um, crop production like this. Has been such an interesting um, conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, I feel like I'm like on my way to becoming a, you know, novice almond expert.
4: (laughs) Well, sometimes Um, I think the professor comes out in me, I'm afraid. But, yes, um, it is. I think I appreciate the opportunity to explain that it is a complex system that we're all trying to, that the growers are functioning in. You have this complex biological ecological, geological, meteorological, and economic system that growers are functioning in, and how do we help through research help address the variety of issues that growers face?
3: Yeah, well, it sounds like definitely um, lots of work to continue on, so we will, of course, need to have you um, come back on another time to kind of continue the conversation. But unfortunately, we are just about out of time. Um, Before we wrap up, I I guess I'm just curious, as someone who spends much of her days uh, thinking um, and talking about almonds, what is your kind of go-to almond uh, consumption? Are you a a snacker of almonds still, or? Oh, yes. (laughs) I would (laughs) say the main, there's so many different
4: ways almonds come in my diet. I mean, one is just I like roasted unsalted almonds just as a snack. But I mean, just last night we toasted some blanched slivered almonds. I tell you, any salad is better with some roasted nuts in it, especially almonds. And then one way I've actually come to really enjoy almonds is to toast them and have them with eggs. So instead of having your toast, you have toasted almonds and your eggs. It tastes really good.
3: Huh? I I I, will I say that I've never I've never, um, huh? I've never thought about that. Um, Yeah, cool. Well, Gabrielle, thank you so much. Um, Of course, it's the Almond Board of California. Um, If if people want to find out more, um, they have a great website with tons of information, um, additional uh, media uh, documents. Uh, You can get all you want to know, probably more (laughs) than you ever wanted to know um, about almonds. Um, It was so lovely to have you on the show today. Thanks for joining us.
4: Well, and thanks for asking me.
3: (laughs) All right, folks, you've made it through another episode of the Farm Report on the Heritage Radio Network. Um, If you like what you hear, and I hope you do, please uh, give us a rating on iTunes, leave your comments, it really helps people find the show. Um, Or visit our website, www.heritageradionetwork.org, where you can check out all 34 of our weekly shows, we, of course, are a 501c3 nonprofit, a member-supported radio station. So that means you. Um, if you have a couple of bucks, please consider sending them our way. You can do that by clicking the beating heart on our, on our website. We've got some great swag. If you're down for a Heritage T-shirt and other stuff like that, would love to send something out to you. Um, but most of all, thanks for listening and stay tuned in.
2: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you.